Again, good to see everyone this morning. We're going to continue on in our apologetic series, Defending Our Faith. And this is our first week we're going to deal with one of the topics. Last week was an introduction. This week is entitled, How Do We Know We Can Trust the Bible? How do we know we can trust the Bible? We're going to look at that this week and next week. We're going to do it in two parts. This week we're going to look at the origin of the Bible. And next week we're going to look at the accuracy of the Bible. It's two reasons why we can actually trust the Bible. I came across a study uh, a couple of months ago. You guys know who millennials are? Every generation is sort of given a a name like Generation X or Baby Boomers. And and, um, the millennial generation is, I don't know the exact numbers to it, but it's like your college students right now, a lot of your high school students. those coming, you know, mostly that are like middle school and whatnot are part of the next generation, but the millennial generation, within the church, some of the studies suggest that millennials within the church and those millennials that call themselves Christians, only about 37% believe that the Bible is accurate and they can trust it. And that's within the church. And so we're going to deal with that topic today. How do we know we can trust the Bible? So today as we look at the origin of the Bible, what I mean by origin is how did we get it? Who wrote the Bible? How did we get this into our hands? How did it come about? So we're going to talk about that today because that will tell us something about whether or not we can trust it. Now next week, we'll look at the accuracy. How do we know that what's written inside about the spiritual things and other things, how do we know that that's actually accurate and how can we trust it? Let's look at our first um, part of our... If you look in your notebooks there, you'll see that the first thing we're going to do is look at knowing the challenge, which again is knowing what the world thinks because that's what we're confronted with, okay? So the world claims that this book that we have here that we call the Bible is simply a man-made book. It's something that mankind wrote, and therefore it can't necessarily be trusted. The world also claims that the Bible is just one religious book out of many religious books. Now cover up your notes with your hand, guys. Okay, cover up your notes, and I want you to see this. We're going to talk about a couple of these real quick. How many of you know what the... um, Jews refer to their Bible as? Anybody know? You know what? We're going to have to start giving out candy to the adults because um, they, what, what do they refer to their... their Torah. Yeah, their Torah. It's primarily the first five books of the Bible, but they don't necessarily... They don't have an Old and a New Testament. Both have an Old Testament, but they call it the Torah. How about... Um, anybody know what Islam refers to their holy book as? Holy Quran. Yeah, the Holy Quran. Yeah, let's see here. Um, we'll do another smarty for you. All right. How about um, how about Mormons? This is an easy one. Any of you kids know what the Mormons refer to their book as? Do you want to try? No. She's going. I, I think I can. I think. Wait, maybe not. Yeah, the Book of Mormon. You got any beef jerky? <laughs> <laughs> the beef jerky, yeah. Next one. We got cookies back there. Okay. The Book of Mormon. Now, you'll see in your notes there, there's some others, but every religious group has their own, what they call religious texts. And there's all kinds of different names for them. I almost want to throw away almost a whole box of candy here for anybody that can pronounce the ones for Hindu. Yeah, they're crazy. I always get stuck on the one. God of Gita, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but um, every group has their own religious text, and what the world tells us is, the Bible's just like that. It's just one book among many. They don't see the uniqueness to it. They say that we can't trust ours any more than any one of those other religious groups trust theirs, and we can do our studies and our research and see how all of those books came about, and it's very different than our own Bible. We'll talk about that a little bit today. 
One last thing that we'll look at here. The world claims that the Bible has been corrupted and changed over time. And for that reason, we can't trust it. There's a group of people that refer to themselves as the Jesus Seminar. It's kind of above many of the the kids in here. You probably wouldn't even, I think, comprehend what that refers to. But it's a group of scholars, really important, smart people, or so they think. And when they look at the Gospels in our Bible, they say, none of that's trustworthy. Jesus didn't say or do any of those things. And so they've come up with a different picture of Jesus that they refer to as the historical Jesus. They don't trust anything that's written in the Gospels. And it's because they say, well, all of Jesus' words and all of his teachings, what he really said, all just got corrupted by mankind. And so what we have in our Bible is just, it's wrong. It's all corrupted. It's not something you can trust. So that's what the world thinks about this Bible. I was watching a a TV show last night, kind of a comical thing. And um, it's pretty clear in this particular show that they make little digs at Christianity time and time again. And even in last night's show, they had these little digs at those people that believe. And they didn't mention the Bible by name, they didn't mention Christians by name, but you you can pretty well see that they're jabbing Christians that believe that the Word of God is trustworthy and accurate. Now, what's the truth about that? I'm going to give you three reasons today why we can actually trust... The Bible that has to do with its origin, okay? So there'll be three things I'll give you on this. The first one, the first reason we can trust the Bible, is that the Bible is trustworthy because it wasn't just written by men. This would be a pretty bold statement, but it was written by God. Okay? The Bible wasn't just written by men, it was written by God. And so how did God do this? I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at a Bible verse we looked at last week. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry, it's actually 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry. Second, you have to correct that in your note. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that's us, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So there's just two things I want to touch on there. The first one is that Paul said that the Word of God, the Bible, or all scriptures, are inspired. In Paul's day, all scripture would have referred primarily to the Old Testament, Jewish writings, because most of the New Testament wasn't written yet, right? How many of you kids know how many books there are in the Old Testament? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yeah. How many? Very, very close. Very close. You can toss that back to her. Anybody want to make another stab? Take that, take that six and turn it around. 39. Take 39. Yeah, it's 39 books of the Bible, actually, or the Old Testament. Now, this one's for both the kids and the parents. When you look at the Old Testament, when Paul says all Scripture, do you know how many parts there are to the Old Testament? That's a tough one. It's actually broken down into five Parts. Five parts, okay? Not super important, but you have Genesis through Deuteronomy, which are the first five books of Moses. That's what the Jews refer to specifically as the Torah. So the first five books of Moses are referred to as the Torah. It's called the Pentateuch. Then you've got the historical books. We've gone through some of those. Joshua and Judges and Esther. You've got the poetic books. Anybody know what the poetic books were? Psalms songs of Solomon. Yeah, Songs of Solomon. You've got... Um, Psalms itself, the Song of Solomon. You've got um, Ecclesiastes, which we actually studied. The fourth part are the major prophets. Anyone of you guys know? Name one of the major prophets. 
Isaiah, yeah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Um, yes, he is. Jeremiah is actually a prophet. Um, minor prophets. Anybody know who the minor prophets are? There's 12 of them. What? We looked at one of them. Hosea. Those are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, basically. So in Paul's day, when Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, what he's referring to are primarily the Old Testament scripts at that time, but he's also referring to something else. He's referring to the New Testament, even though it hadn't really quite been written yet. How many know how many books there are in the New Testament? Throw your hand up. Anybody want to guess? Cut them up real quick. Yeah, you can cut them up real quick. Yeah, toss this back. What do you got? 27. Yeah, 27. You got, a, you got one already. You're going to have the whole thing by the time we're done. <laughs> they were stealing out of the bag this week at home. Okay, somebody was. I'm to figure out who that is. There's only three other people in my family. Yeah, Max, the dog. Okay. So how many, how many books in the New Testament? That's right, 27 new books, or 27 books and letters in the uh, New Testament. All right, so what we have is Paul saying that all Scripture, all of the Old Testament, and the books that were currently being written in Paul's day, Peter actually makes a very interesting statement about Paul's writings because Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter refers to Paul's writing as Scripture. And so we know that when Paul's referring to all Scripture here, he's referring to not just the Old Testament, but anything that would come about in that New Testament that was written by him and the other apostles. And he says something very unique here. He uses the word inspired. How many remember from last week what the literal meaning of that Greek word for inspired is? We talked about it a little bit last week. Anybody remember? Yeah. It means to be God-breathed. It's like the actual breath of God. And so what Paul says is one of the reasons why we can trust the Bible, one of the reasons we know that it was written by God is because it was breathed out by God. It's not something that just came about from man. In fact, we're going to see that in a little bit here. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter gives us a rather interesting statement as it comes to scripture as well. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 20 and 21, he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We're going to look at two things that Peter says here. One is he says that no Scripture is part of one's own interpretation. Now, what's interesting about the word that he uses here, when we think of interpretation, we think of going to this book and sort of trying to figure out what it says. But actually, when we look at the Greek language that's behind this, it has to do with an, an individual's own understanding. And so a better, way, a better word maybe than interpretation here is the word understanding. Meaning, no prophecy, no, no prophet who ever spoke, giving the word of God, no prophet who ever wrote, so when Moses wrote the scriptures, what, the, what Peter is actually saying here is that didn't come from that person's own imagination or that person's own understanding of spiritual things. All of the other religious groups that we, we talked about this morning a little bit ago and the books that are referred to as their spiritual writings were all written by men and women who 
thought they knew about God. It came from the books came from their own understanding about who God is and who God was, or about spiritual things. In fact, that's why so many of those have within them tons of, of conflict back and forth. They say one thing and then a little bit later they say something different. They're inconsistent. And so what Peter is saying here is that prophecy that was given by men or by the prophets of the Old Testament and by people like Paul and the New Testament writers, that those things didn't come about from their own interpretation, their own understanding of spiritual things about God. So that's the first thing we see there. The second thing we see there, he says, it didn't come about by the act of human will. Do you notice that? It says that men were moved by the Holy Spirit. This means that no passage of Scripture was ever initiated by a human being, but rather the Holy Spirit came upon them, gave them the words to speak or the words to write. And so as we look at this, this particular you know, one piece of this puzzle here, one of the reasons um, that we trust the Bible is because it's not just written by men, it was written by God. God took the Holy Spirit and He moved people to write what God wanted them to write or to say what God wanted them to say. It wasn't just some man or some woman writing what they thought about God. And that's what separates the Bible from the other spiritual writings. You know, if you look at the, um, the Quran, for instance, it's the writing of one man, Muhammad. It's about what he thought about God. And it contradicts what's written in the Scriptures. It's from his own imagination, from his own mind. If you look at Mormonism, one man, Joseph Smith, writes an additional book, the book of... Mormonism. And it was all from his imagination, what he thought about God. And again, it contradicts with what the scriptures say. Now let me ask another question for you kids here. So if God is perfect, we know he is, what can we say about something God wrote? Yeah. That it's also perfect? Yeah, absolutely. That it's also perfect. If what God wrote is like God, it has to be perfect. So if God is perfect then we know that what he wrote is perfect. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 19 with me. We'll look at an Old Testament here. Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19 is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's certainly one of my favorite passages of Old Testament. Psalm chapter 19, I'm going to read this to you, and I'm just going to make a couple of quick observations. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, listen to what this says. Oh, we're going to start at, um, we'll start at verse 7, I'm sorry. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. He says, as he writes this psalm, that the word of God is perfect, which means it's completely sound. There's nothing imperfect about it. He says that it's sure, which means it's trustworthy, it's reliable. He says that it's right, which is actually the word for straight. A lot of times when we read these other spiritual writings by other people, they're all over the map. In fact, I think I told you a story about um, one individual that, uh, that an uncle of mine follows, and I, can, I can't even understand what he writes. I see all the posts on Facebook, and sometimes the sentences don't even make sense. It's all over the map. It's not straight. It says one thing and then says something else. It says here that it's pure, which means it's not mixed with anything else. It also says that it's true, which means it's reliable. So, when we learn about the Bible, one of the reasons that we can trust it is because it was written by God, not just by man. Now, we actually have evidence of this, too. 
we can look at the Bible and we can see some very unique things about it that give us the understanding that it's probably not authored just by men. I'm going to just cite some of these things. You can take notes if you want to, but we've already said that there's 39 Old Testament books and there's 27 New Testament books. So there's 66 different books, guys. Now, those 66 books were written, or books and letters were written, over a 1,500 to 2,000-year period by over 40 different people who lived on three different continents and spoke multiple different languages, and yet somehow they happened to write all their stuff, and when we put it together, it's all consistent. How many of you have ever heard an analogy where if you watch a car accident, say there's 10 people that see a car accident, and then the police interview those 10 people about that car accident, do you think that every single person gives the exact same story about what he saw? It rarely happens. And it's because everybody's got their own perspective, and so as they write down what they saw, or as they tell the police what they saw, the stories don't always match. And so the police have to sort of figure it out and try to, try to determine exactly what happened. So if ten people watching the same accident together can't tell exactly the same story, but then when we look at the Bible and we see that we've got 40 people over three continents, over 2,000 years, that speak different languages, most of them who didn't even know each other, and yet it's all consistent. They all tell the same story. And so there's many of us that look at that and say, there's no way that it could have been just a man-written book. God must have been a part of it because what's written there is consistent. And again, when you have different people who didn't know each other over that big of a period of time, the evidence tells us that what's written there is unique and very different. Like I said, many of the other religious writings that are written by one man, say for instance, Muhammad with, with the Quran, they can't even be consistent themselves with what they write about spiritual things, let alone getting a bunch of people together and writing all the same things. So the first reason that we can trust the Bible there is because it's not written by man. Man has a part in it, but it was written by God. Let's look at the second reason why we can trust the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy because it was assembled by God. What does it mean to assemble something? Anybody know? What does it mean to assemble something? Yeah, basically, it's a simple word for put it together, right? So, what I'm going to say here is that what God did was he didn't only write the Bible, but remember, it's 66 different books over a 2,000-year period, but somehow, we all have it in one nicely bound book here, don't we? So, somebody had to put that together for us. Now, in some circles in the church, and even outside the church, they claim that a bunch of men got together and had these councils, and they decided which books fit into the Bible, and it's not actually accurate historically. Okay, We're going to talk about that because this is really important. Because what's interesting about this book is there was no single individual or person or group that made this for us, that put it together, that gathered all those writings over thousands of years and put it together. There's something supernatural about the way that it came about. The Old Testament... If you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 with me, Deuteronomy chapter 10, look at verse 2. You can see a rather interesting statement. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 2. We'll start up in verse 1. At that time the Lord said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones. There's, remember what happened? Moses got upset at the people, so he broke the stone tablets. God made him do it again. But this time he's going to make him write it. 
And come up to me in the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourselves. I will, oh, God wrote this one, I'm sorry. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. You catch that? Basically what he's doing is he's telling Moses, take those first five books that I gave to you, and keep those. And put them in the ark. Now this is likely, it could be a reference just to the Ten Commandments being on the stones, or it could be parts of the text, but the reality of it is that God told Moses to take what was written and to put it in the ark, meaning he wanted it to be preserved and to be passed on. But ultimately we know that, in, that um, the reason, or the, that um, as a result of Moses doing that, we actually have that today. We have the first five books of the Old Testament because Moses took and put them aside. Now what happened over time is that as God spoke through the prophets, the people of Israel continued to take their writings and add them to this collection. And so what we basically found is that as Isaiah and so many of the other prophets spoke, people would take and write down what they spoke. Some of the prophets, like um, you know, with Hosea, that they wrote their own material, meaning that God moved them to write down their prophecies. And as they did that, Israel began to collect those writings. But they didn't collect everything, they just collected certain ones. We don't know why. And as they collected those things, they began to be bound together and become part of what we refer to as the Old Testament. And then we have these scribes whose only job it was was to take and make copies of those writings. And so they would begin to make copies of those writings and pass those copies on down to the next generation. And so through the through the um, time over time, as you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament was built by the Israelites taking and adding additional writings to their scriptures as the prophets would speak them. But again, there's no one individual that says, oh, this is for the Bible or this is not for the Bible. That it was simply done almost miraculously by God. So much so that by the time we get to about 200 B.C., we have a full Old Testament. In fact, um, an Egyptian king, basically, Pharaoh, actually came to the Jews and asked at one point, sometime around 200 B.C. or so, um, to make copies of all their writings and put them into a single edition, if you will, so that he could put it in, at the time, which is probably the world's largest library in the world, the Library of Alexandria. And so, by that time, even the Egyptians recognized that Israel had an Old Testament. And so, again, as we look at that, the way that it came about was very slowly, but under God's direction. First, by telling Moses to write, then to take and record that in the tabernacle, leave it there. Then as he instructed scribes to make copies, and as he began to do that. So at some point, like I said, shortly before the end of the, the B.C. era, we have this complete Old Testament with 39 books. What about the New Testament? It's kind of very similar. As Paul wrote, we saw when we did Thessalonians, he told them to make a copy of the letter and have another church read it. And when we see that... Um, but we don't, what we don't really see in the New Testament is any instruction as to making a Bible. Instead, what would happen is Paul would write, and as Peter would write, and others would write, individual Christians, as they would read those, would recognize something unique about them, and they would preserve them. And what's really strange about this is when we look at church history, we see some of the what are called councils get together, groups of Christian leaders as they come together. They already have these lists of what was in the New Testament, even though 
nobody had told them what to include in the New Testament, nobody told them to do it, they would look around and find out, and they would find out that this group of Christians over here had the same list of books, and this group of Christians over here had the same list of books. Now, the only way that can come about is God supernaturally leading Christians to recognize which things, which writings were Scripture and which were not. And I know it's kind of a hard concept to get your head around, but my point is that there's really no time in history where you see a group of men or a man sit down and go, well, this one's in, this one's out. What happened at these councils, these meetings, is they simply recognized this is what is already our New Testament canon. These books are already considered Scripture. Now, some people argued with that. Luther argued he didn't like the book of James. So he argued, wanted to take it out. But the church went, no. It's always, people consider it Scripture. So what we end up with is this um, very mysterious, if you will, but very supernatural work that God did in the church to combine Old Testament books and New Testament writings into one collection, if you will, that we call our Bible. So it's not assembled by man. It's not that we decided what goes in or what goes out with Mohammed or the Book of Mormon or others. They decided what to put in their Bible, what not to. Again, came from their own imagination. We go back all the way in history, we don't ever see that with the Bible. What we see instead is somehow God miraculously moving people to recognize this is Scripture, this is not. And they held on to it, and they copied it, and they passed it on to the next generation. And so that's how our Bible came about very mysteriously, but very supernaturally. God assembled it, not us. Pretty remarkable thing. It's another reason why I believe we can trust it, because it has the footprint, if you will, or the handprints of God all over it. Even the way that it came about. There's a third reason why the Bible is trustworthy. Not only did God write it, not only did God then assemble it and put it all together and bring those pieces together for us, but the last thing he did was he actually preserved it for us. He actually preserved it for us. How many of you guys realize that what you're holding in your hand is over 2,000 years old? Isn't that kind of neat? What you're holding in your hand is something that was written, many parts of it, over 2,000 years ago. Now, they didn't write it in English. We'll touch on that at some point. How many of you know... We'll do it again. How many of you kids know um, what language was the Old Testament written in? Greek. Greek? There's an Old Testament copy made in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. But the original, what was the original language? Hebrew? That's one of them. What do you want? A uh, chocolate kiss or a... I can take the chocolate kiss. There you go. Super holy kiss. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Aramaic? You know what? That's, that's excellent. Yeah, Aramaic. There are a couple of small portions of the Old Testament that are written in Aramaic. Okay? What's the last one? One more. It was copied into Greek. So there's a something called the Septuagint, which is, which is the whole Old Testament written in Greek. But it was written in Aramaic and Hebrew. Hebrew was the other language. Now what about the New Testament? What was the New Testament written in? Anybody know? Come on. Somebody got to know what the New Testament is. Dave? We'll do it anyway. Greek. <laughs> the old New Testament was written in something called, in Greek actually. It sounded like a trick question. Now, yeah. we're going to play another part of this. What did they write on? We already saw what Moses wrote on. What did Moses write on? Stone tablets. Stone tablets. Now, can you think about that for a second? Coming to church holding your big stone tablets? <laughs> no. No. Um, 
so some of it was written on stone tablets, okay? But there were, there's something else. What did they use for paper in the Old Testament and the New Testament? This is a tough one. Scrolls? There were scrolls. They were made out of something. Katie? Yeah, there's a fa- there's actually a fancy word for um, animal skins. It's called vellum. Okay, Old Testament scriptures were written on vellum. New Testament and some Old Testament were also written on something else. Funny word starts with a P. Anybody know? Yeah. Go ahead, Nora. Papyrus. Yeah, actually, um, it was a plant. Found mostly in Egypt and that. What they would do is they would take these plants and they would take and beat them with a mallet and flatten them out. And that would make their paper. Now, what happens to animal skin and plant as things get old? They decay and they disappear. Okay? Which makes you wonder how in the world when... I mean, Moses' tablets could still be around for all we know. It's written on stone. But... When you think about all the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers that wrote their stuff on dead animal skin and on plant, fibrous plant material, and you know that stuff just decays, how in the world did that stuff get preserved? How did we end up with our English Bible then if that stuff just dissolves and disappears? I have a letter from my dad. who wrote, My dad wrote it to me when I was a senior in high school. And it's on paper and it's written in ink. But the paper's turned all yellow and the ink is starting to fade Parts of it are a little harder to read. Even that stuff doesn't last. Okay. Well, the reason that we have this today, even though the paper they used and the stuff they wrote on could decay rather easily, is because God promised that he would preserve his word, and he found a way to do that. Now, the best way for me to describe that is they simply copied them. Okay. So they had scribes that would copy those letters over and over and over and sort of pass them on to the next generation so that they would survive. There's a very fancy word. I'm going to give you a big theological phrase, actually, that refers to this. And actually, it's called the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. I should give a gold star to anybody that can remember that. The doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. All that means, folks, is that God has done something miraculous. He has preserved writings for us as far back as Moses, through all the prophets, even at a time where they didn't have computers to record everything, or paper like we do that would then last for a lot longer. God preserved everything that was written on our behalf through a process, even in the most hostile of circumstances, on paper and stuff that would just dissolve and disappear very, very quickly. We find that even with our government, they can't keep track of records that are on computers. Right? So God did a pretty miraculous thing. He preserved all of this for us. Now, we know that this is true, I think, for primarily two reasons. One is that God promised it, and the second is that we have the evidence for us. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke or letter shall pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Now, the context of that is Jesus is really saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, and not even the smallest part of the law will disappear. But secondly, this is a reference to preserving God's word, that he says that none of the Old Testament will be lost. And we still have in our hands today some 
two, three thousand years later, we still have a record of the Old Testament law in our Bibles. Look at Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but what does he say about his words? Yeah, my words will never pass away. Now what's interesting about that is that, remember we have this Jesus seminar group that says, we don't know what Jesus said, so they just sort of make it up. This is what he really said. And they look at the Bible and they go, well sure, that might be what your red letter edition of your Bible says, but that's not what Jesus said. We don't know what Jesus said. But Jesus said that his words would not fade away. So we have this promise from Jesus that we'd still have his word. Look at um, look at First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, verses twenty-four and twenty-five. Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter forty. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But what does he say about the Word of God? He says, But the Word of God endures forever. So what we have in the Scriptures is one of the reasons we we, we look at this and we say, Wow, how did we get that? Is because God promised that He would protect His Word. So, when Moses wrote it, God basically said, Mike Pamperin sitting in Westerville, Ohio on October 15th would have what I wrote. And it's because he promised to actually preserve that for us. Now there's a second reason why I believe we can say that about this and it's that we have evidence for it. Now we're going to do something here that's a little bit... You guys remember playing the telephone game? You guys remember that? I need five of you to come up here real fast. Five of the kids. Anybody want to volunteer? You guys want to do this for us? I won't even make you. I won't embarrass you. This will be. This will be fine. You know what the telephone game is, right? All right. I'm going to give a phrase. A couple of you guys come up here too. We'll do this real fast. I'm going to give you a phrase. I'm going to give it to one person, and you're going to repeat that phrase to everybody down the line. Okay? And you know how the telephone game works. Anybody else want to come up real fast? All right. Come up here real fast. You guys can do this really quiet, though. Okay? Because you don't want anybody else to be able to hear you. And the person next to you can't really hear you either. Okay? Come on over here. So we're going to start here. Okay? I'm going to give you a phrase. You've got to pass it to the next person. Okay? You can only repeat it twice to them, but repeat it quietly. And if you don't exactly remember it, you still got to say something to the person next to you. You've got to pass something on to them. All right? So, you ready? Do you mind if I do this? I'm going to whisper it to you. Okay? I'm going to do it twice. I'll do it a little bit slowly here. Does that make sense? Or is that too much? I think that makes sense. You got it? All right. It's already falling apart. I'll repeat it, I'll repeat it one more time for you. Ready? <laughs> Pastor Dustin. Take one. Yeah. Nobody knows what's happening on a podcast, right? I'll have to edit that part out. They're already laughing up here. Too bad. <laughs> Paul didn't have white out in his day, so you can't just read you know do it. Right, go ahead, you want to do it? Okay, you can go ahead and tell Nora. There you go. This is gonna fall apart terribly, I can tell you right now. 
actually didn't point to this, folks, okay? All right, okay, now, this is, this is, the, te- this is the test. What did, what, did I, what did I tell her? Um, well, what I heard was something, something, Dustin, per hour. <laughs> something, something. All right, all right. Something, something, Dustin, per hour, right? So this broke down in five minutes over ten people, right? It's the most important thing. It's the most important thing. All right. What I actually said was Pastor Dustin devours a dozen delicious duck donuts daily. I even made it easy by using all D's for alliteration purposes, but it still broke down. Now, like I said, you guys can go ahead and sit down. There's actually a point. There's actually a point to this. There's actually, there's actually a point to this, guys. And the point is this. Moses wrote something. Paul wrote something. And all we have are copies, which means they had to do what you guys did. They had to pass it on. They didn't live in the days of computers or texting. They couldn't type up an email and just forward the email and forward the email so that it all stays intact. They had to repeat things, sometimes orally, sometimes written. Okay? And so the stuff had to be copied from one person to another person. And then from one generation to another generation. And what's interesting about the Bible is it had to happen over thousands of years. So how in the world do we know that what Moses wrote, what I said, Katie, that we have today what Moses wrote? Who's the last one, Eddie? How do we know? One way is what if we could go back and we could take what she said and go all the way over to Katie and say, what did you hear? And then ask her, what did you hear? If they matched, what does that mean? What does that mean about every step in the process? It means everybody got it right. We can do that with the Bible. Do you know that? We can do that with the Bible. And the reason is we have thousands and thousands and thousands of ancient copies. We can go back to, in fact, almost within 50 or 60 years of when the Apostle John actually wrote And we have copies that are only 40, 50, 60 years old of what he wrote. And then we have copies a couple hundred years later, and a couple hundred years later, all the way up to just eight, nine hundred years ago. And guess what? These copies all are the same. They're all the same. So we can look at the telephone game that was played. Now, how many of you, when we look at, say, the Old and the New Testament, we have thousands and thousands of copies, ancient copies written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic that we, can, that we found. We find them in caves. We find them in the ground. We find them in old people's homes, you know, from, from thousands years ago. How many do you think we have? I said thousands. Somebody, jump, show me, somebody give me a number. How many copies do you think we have of just parts of the Old Testament? Anybody want to guess? This is kind of important. What's that? Thousand? Actually, it's quite a bit higher than that. Actually, it's uh, quite a bit higher than that. Well, actually, the Old Testament, you're right, 10,000 of the Old Testament. How many of the New Testament? There's actually almost 30,000 copies. That's important, folks. You know why? Now, you kids might not understand this, um, but there's actually, when you look at something like, um, you know who Plato is? Anybody know who Plato is? Okay, Famous, famous poet. Okay. 
Plato's writings, what he wrote, some of this stuff, we have a couple hundred copies of it. That's it. That is the next best book or writing in history in terms of the number of copies that we have of it. About 600. We have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible that we can compare one to the other. And what's interesting about that is we do that, we find out that they're consistent. If we took all of those copies, we've got 30,000 copies of the New Testament, we've got 10,000 copies of parts of the Old Testament. Not only that, all of these what are called church fathers in history, which were um, famous church leaders over history, they quoted the Bible over 90,000 times in their own writings, and we can compare their quotes with these other copies, and when we do that, you know how many mistakes we find? from one copy to the next, or one generation to the next? Anybody want to guess? Give me a percentage. 1%. Yeah. Less than 1% difference. Can you imagine that? With the telephone game that we just did, how much did we... We didn't end up with... The only thing we got right was Dustin. <laughs> that was it. Okay? With the Bible, let's say that Katie's Moses. And let's say that Addie is my English New Testament. There's, there's less than just a fraction, a hair difference. And what's really neat about that, folks, is that none of those mistakes even change the meaning because they're mistakes in things like punctuation. Missed a comma here. Or sometimes words that are reversed. It'll say Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus. Does it really matter if you say Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ? Not really. And so almost all of these little tiny mistakes that are less than 1% of what we have, they change the meaning that much. Zero. And so what, what's my point with this, guys? My point is this. That we have more than enough evidence that what Moses wrote and what the apostles wrote and what all the Old Testament prophets wrote, we have all the evidence we need to know that what we have here is exactly what they wrote. Maybe the semicolon wasn't in the right place. Maybe the comma wasn't in the right place. But the actual words that they wrote... We can validate it. We can say we have what they wrote, which leads us all back to why we did this today in the first place. Is the Bible trustworthy? Can we actually trust it? When we look at what we have here, there is no other book or religious writing anywhere in the world that even comes close to what we have in our Bible. And so, again, the three reasons that I think we can trust the Bible is that it wasn't just written by man. There's evidence that it was written by God. And one of the best evidences is the internal consistency. All these guys wrote the same basic thing about God, His character, and about salvation, even though they didn't know each other. And they lived in totally different times. So, one evidence, or one reason, is that God wrote it. It's not just the writings of some man, some religious leader. We also see that God assembled it. He put it together for us supernaturally by moving his church to collect the letters that Paul wrote and collect the letters that Peter wrote and collect the writings that that Hosea wrote. And they recognized supernaturally there's something unique and special about this. This is God's words, not just man's words. And so they kept those. And they put them together. And then the last reason that we can trust the Bible is because God promised he would preserve it and he did just that. And so when we look at whether or not we can trust this, we know we can look at what Moses wrote, and we can say, that's what Moses wrote. And we know that it's 
True. Now, the very last thing we'll touch base on here, and we'll be fairly quick about this, is we talked about not just knowing the challenge and knowing the truth, but knowing how to respond. So the question is, how would you respond to somebody if they were to say, come on, you can't trust the Bible. I put a couple of question and answers in your thing here. We won't spend a lot of time on this because I want you to be able to read it yourself. And this is just my thoughts, okay? Meaning, how to answer questions sometimes. Um, that's not scripture. You may have a different way of doing it. But let's look at just the first one there. What if somebody said, oh, the Bible is just another book. Just another book. You can't really trust it. It's man's word. It's not God's word. What might you actually say to them based on some of the stuff we covered today? Well, you've got an example there of something that I might do. Okay? I might answer something like this. Well, the Bible's not just another religious book. In fact, it's unique. It's the most unique book in all of history. For instance, did you know that the Bible isn't one book? In fact, it's 66 different books or letters written by 40 different people from three different countries or continents, and it was written over 2,000 years. What amazes me about this is that most of the writers didn't even know each other, and they lived at totally different times in different places, and yet what they wrote about God is incredibly consistent. What you've just told somebody by saying that is, no, it's not just a book like any other book. And you've given them some facts that might help them to understand. And when you say things like, wow, 40 different authors over three different continents wrote in three different languages and they lived over different centuries, and yet, guess what? They all write the same thing. How is that possible? How is that possible? And it gives them something to think about reasonably. So they all say the same thing about, they all say the same thing about God, like His nature, His character, His love how to know Him and how to find salvation. This is one reason why we Christians believe the Bible is God's Word and not just man's. Then you go on and you might say something like, you know, did you know that the Bible claims to be inspired by God? That's why so many writers can say the same thing, because God spoke through them. God told them what to say, which is why they're able to say the same things. And then you might quote something like 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired. You might quote from Second Peter and say, you know, even Peter said that the prophecy, the, old, the prophets that wrote and spoke this, didn't do it on their own. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't based on their own understanding. Okay? Now remember, what are we supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be arguing with these folks? No. We're defending our faith, aren't we? And so we looked at some rules last week about being gracious and being kind. And so all you have to do is when people ask or make statements like that is just... Give them the best answer you can based on the things we talk about here. Being gracious and be kind. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about convincing them as much as it is just defending what you believe. And so these are some of the reasons you might give them. Why do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? You can share some of the things we shared today. You can mention some of the scripture passages that we talked about today. Now, I'll leave the other one for you. 